So we had a wedding. And I'm looking out at this beautiful young lady who has a different last name than the one that she woke up with yesterday. But as Juliet said to her beloved Romeo, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. So that thing really happened yesterday. I told myself that today. But I remember as if it were yesterday, the day that Hannah was born, the day that I became a father for the very first time. So this was a new experience for me. And even though God had given me nine months to prepare for it, when it happened, it happened suddenly. Before, I mean, before she came along, I was just a guy with a wife. And I had just finally adjusted to the roller coaster ride of being a guy with a pregnant wife. And then out of nowhere, this little head popped into the world. And in one moment, my life was changed forever. I'd held lots of babies before, but this wasn't just any baby. This beautiful baby girl was my daughter. By the way, this is a really dumb story to tell the day after your daughter's wedding. Um, and it was overwhelming to think that for years to come, this little creature would depend on everything, on me for everything she needs. And it was even more overwhelming to think that her early opinions and maybe lifelong opinions of who God is would be very much rooted in what she sees in me. And on that first night in the hospital room, Hannah woke up crying, and my wife had been through a little bit more than I had, so I decided that she should probably get some rest. So I went and picked up Hannah. Now, I'd never practiced for this moment. Nobody had ever told me what I was supposed to do. I hadn't read any books about it. I hadn't watched any YouTube tutorials. Nobody had counseled me as to what I ought to say. But something very real happened in my heart in that moment. I already knew very well how much God loved me. But when I held my newborn child, he did something in me that made me understand his love in a whole new way. The heart of the Father came alive in me, and I knew exactly what to say. I just said, it's okay. Daddy's here. And then I made her a promise. Daddy will always be here. And for the record, Hannah, marriage doesn't nullify that promise. It simply extends it to Dylan. So how could I make that promise? I mean, that's, it takes a lot of audacity to make a promise like that, doesn't it? Well, I could make that promise because the love of the Father was rooted deeply in me, and I knew without a doubt that He would always be there for me, that He would always love me, and I could do that because He had proved it to me through my Father. Last week, I shared the story how at the most hopeless time in my life, the Lord began a transforming work in me through the assurance of my Father, who said to a very lost and broken and confused young man, no matter what you do with your life, no matter what kind of man you become, there is one thing that will never change. I will always be your father, and you will always be my son. And I told you that that conversation wasn't an isolated incident, but it was representative of something I'd seen in dad in his heart towards me for a whole lifetime. My parents have a tape recording. We still had tape recordings back then of when I was about two years old. It was during the night, and I woke up crying. I wasn't feeling well, and like any young child, I didn't like being awake in the dark. And Dad came in my room to comfort me. He rubbed my back and spoke, spoke to me with a reassuring voice and asked me if I wanted to sing a song to make me feel better. I don't know why that works, but it seems to work with kids a lot. I said yes, and I sang an old Sunday school song that many of you will remember based on the words of Jesus to Peter in Mark chapter 1. I will make you fishers of men... Fishers of men, you know it, fishers of men, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. 
And somehow, decades before the age of social media, they felt the need to record it. I don't know what goes through your mind. My kid's crying. Where's the recorder? <laughs> but they did. And I want to welcome you into my room about 52 years ago. This is me and Dad. Just like that, I was asleep again. I had peace. Dad didn't do anything magical. He just came. Nothing around me had really changed. I was still a little kid. Something still didn't feel well. It was still dark. But something inside of me had changed, and everything was okay for one reason, because Dad was there. In every part of my life, Dad was always there. It wasn't because he didn't have anything else to do. He worked. He did cool stuff, too, like the other dads we just talked about. It was because he's my father and he loves me. And not with a human-centered love that wants to come and fix everything and make it okay. He loved me with a much deeper love, a love that had greater goals for me, a love that was much more concerned with what kind of man I would become than with what kind of things I would accomplish. A love that, more than anything in the world, wanted me to know the love of God, my real father, and to love him and to serve him with my whole life. My dad's not perfect. He'll be the first to tell you he's not even close to perfect. He has weaknesses and struggles and limitations like anybody else. But every day of my life, I've known this. If I need him, he will bring his limitations and his struggles and his weaknesses with him. But in whatever way he's able to be there, he will be there. I know it because he's my father and because I'm his son. And because of what I saw in my dad, there's one promise of God that I don't have much trouble believing at all. It's the promise that he made to an 80-year-old man named Moses when he called him to go and confront the most powerful ruler on earth with nothing but a stick in his hand. It's the promise he made to Joshua after Moses died, and he sent him to lead Israel into the promised land and meet enemy after enemy. It's the promise that he made to Gideon when he called him to take an army of just 300 soldiers against the more than 100,000 soldier Midianite army. It's the promise he made to his disciples when he sent them into the world to make disciples of all nations. And it's the same promise he makes to you and me as we walk with him in his purposes today. And I think it's his best promise. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is where we see the heart of God 
at its best, in its fullness, in the relentless faithfulness of God that pursues us and draws us and works in us, that's always calling us, always molding us, always shaping us, the love of a father that simply refuses to leave us alone, the love of a father that will not rest for even a moment until he has accomplished his purposes in you and in me. That's a promise from the heart of God. And I want to look at a passage this morning that underlines the security that we have and the peace with which we can live when we know the reality of that promise. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there or you just want to look at the screen, turn with me to Psalm 121. I'm not getting a monitor up there. Oh, is it not even on? It's still not on. It's on. Were you there? Okay, cool. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. This psalm was originally a collection of psalms for travelers who were making their way to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals that they had every year. And keep in mind, they weren't just going anywhere to do anything. This was the promise of God for his people as they walked in his purposes for his glory. And when they made these journeys, they would often hire someone to act as a watchman for their journey during the day. And then when they stayed and camped somewhere at night, they would meet with the local leaders and hire someone trustworthy to watch over them while they slept. The word describing the work of a watchman is the key throughout this psalm. You see it six times. And depending on what translation you have, it says something like, he watches over you, he keeps you, he's your keeper, he guards, he protects. This psalm is a wonderful promise of the security that you have when you know you are a child of God. But as simple as it is to understand in your minds, this isn't difficult theological truth to grasp, but as difficult as this is, we often run into trouble with this in real life, either because we won't humble ourselves and recognize that we do need his help, or because we don't even recognize that we need his help. Let's be honest, we're really good. If we're good at anything in the church, we're good at dressing ourselves up and coming and pretending that we have it all together. We waste so much of our conversations robbing one another and ourselves of the ability to strengthen and build one another up, to encourage and to be encouraged. You've been in some of these, you've been in some of these conversations. And it just, you just wonder, does this person have the things going on in them as I, like I do? And since they obviously don't, I'll play the same game. And it's so ironic because the one thing that binds us together is that we don't have it all together. And everyone in this room desperately is dependent on the grace of God for everything from eternal salvation to your very next breath. And sometimes it's not a cover-up, but we just don't recognize it. We live in a society that thinks we've pretty much got everything under control. Conversation in the foyer often sounds like this. Don't have this after church today. How are you doing? We're good. Work is good. School is good. Everybody's healthy. Just build a new deck on the back of the house. Everything's good. 
You see, when everything's going well, we can easily slip into a kind of self-induced middle-class coma that begins to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can actually keep watch over our own lives, that we can help ourselves. Like the church in Laodicea, whose lives cried out, I am rich and increased in goods, and therefore I have need of nothing. But we're smarter than the Laodiceans because we don't actually say it. We know the right Bible verses to quote to cover it up, and that's the dangerous part. Because when we quote all the right scriptures, sometimes in the hidden part of our hearts, we don't realize that we've actually become to depend on other things. Our wealth, our education, our training, our social connections, our skills, our personalities. And be careful, it can even happen in ministry. How's church going? Oh, it's great. We just moved to two services. We're in the midst of a building program. Got some new families who are really active in the church. But that doesn't always tell the whole story, does it? Graduation and wedding season makes it even worse because we're constantly pelted with this illusion of happily ever after. And it all sounds great if we lived in Disney World, but we don't live in Disney World. We live in the real world. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how well we are connected, no matter how well we even pray, life will continue to happen. And in one way or another, you will meet things that you can't even begin to figure out how to control. And the writer of this psalm doesn't appear to be in any trouble at the time. He just knows that that day is going to come. And when he does, when it does, he knows exactly where to look for help. What kind of help do we find in him? First of all, the help that comes from the Lord is powerful. He starts with a statement followed by a question. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where am I going to find help? The writer was looking to the hills. He was thinking about the journey ahead. This journey to Jerusalem, whatever direction you came from, was going to take you through hills. And one thing that you would encounter in the hills as you journey is what the Old Testament refers to as the high places, altars that were built to pagan gods that were meant to offer sacrifices so they could try to manipulate God to give them all of the things they wanted that they thought would give them life. But the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah that you won't find any power to help on those places at all. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is nothing more than a deception. But in the Lord God is our salvation. So the psalmist understands very well that when he looks to the mountains and he asks the question, where will my help come from? He knows he's looking to the place where his help will not come from. Where do I find help? Not from those false gods who are worshipped in the hills. My help comes from the real God, the one who made those hills in the first place. And when he looked to the hills, he also knew what the journey entailed. That was a difficult place to travel. Narrow, rocky, slippery mountain paths. Danger from bandits who would often stop and rob travelers. Exposure to the hot Mediterranean sun during the day. And exposure to the cold as they slept out in the open at night. He knew as he looked ahead what this journey was like, and he knew it wouldn't be easy. And he's saying, as I travel this road, where am I going to find someone to walk with me to get where I'm supposed to be. And he says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The one who helps you is the one who made heaven and earth. Don't just let that pass by you. If you've been in church all your life, of course you've heard that before. Since you were in Sunday school, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. But it's not just a kid's truth. 
It's not just a beginning Sunday school thing. The fact that the God who made heaven and earth is your help is a mind-boggling reality. Don't miss it. He spoke the universe into existence with just a word. And if he can do that, he can probably manage your life as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for the church, a very mature church, actually. But he wanted to make sure they got it. And what he prayed for them is he said, I pray that you would understand the amazing power that God has availed to people who put their trust in him through Jesus Christ because of the presence of his spirit. And he says this, listen to this. That power that is at work in you is the same power that God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I don't know how to measure that, but that's power. It's not out there somewhere. It's not just something we teach about and sing about. It is within. That's why in chapter 3, when Paul prays for the church again, he says, this is all to the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we can ask or think. That means this. And he says, don't get get this wrong, because we sometimes think that means if I pray for $100, God gives me $5,000. That's not what it's saying. According to the power that works within us. So imagine, imagine what God could do in you. Imagine how God could strengthen you. Imagine how God could surround you with his peace. Imagine how God could fill you with his love. Imagine how God could give you a joy that transcends any circumstance. Dream big, the Apostle Paul says, and your dream will only begin to scratch the surface of what God through his indwelling spirit can accomplish in you and through you because that power is not a thing it's not some impersonal force that we pray and God zaps us with it and then we're able to do all kinds of great things that power is a person the spirit of almighty God the maker of heaven and earth who is living and dwelling within you within you You see, God's not just this big, faraway God who does big things like filling oceans and spinning planets and hanging stars in the sky. That big, all-powerful, all-knowing God is the perfectly loving Father whose heart is very much concerned with you. That help that comes from the Lord is powerful. Don't underestimate it. But it's also a help that's intensely personal. The Psalms, this Psalm, you know, there's a lot of big picture, you plural stuff in the scriptures. This Psalm is not the concern of a nation. This is not a prayer for big things like peace talks and world hunger and economic development. This, he's not asking God, someone to help keep the sky from falling on all of us. He's not asking for help to get someone to oversee a nation so that we can make it great again. This is a personal thing. Where does my help come from? And the psalm says that the God who keeps the universe in place is the God who keeps you. At this point in time, God had worked as a watchman for Israel for about a thousand years. And now the psalmist tells us that God's taken on a second job. He's watching over your life. He's working to keep you. Look throughout the passage. You see this over and over again. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. God is not just some faraway creator sitting on some faraway throne enjoying his power and glory in some faraway universe. That awesome, all-everything God knows your name. 
And not only does he know your name, he knows every detail of your life. And that's why the psalmist can say in verse 3, he will not allow your foot to slip. The powerful God who created those mountains is intimately acquainted with the exact piece of that mountain on which your foot currently rests. He's not saying the journey will always be smooth. He knew, the psalmist knew, that a slip of the foot on the paths of the mountains of Canaan could be fatal. My help is not found in the sense that the Lord will remove all difficulty. My help is not found in the fact that God's going to make everything go the way I want it to. It's found in knowing that in spite of difficulty along the way, in spite of the fact that I will often fall, he will not allow my foot to slip in such a way that it leads to my destruction. I can be absolutely sure that the Lord will not fail to get me to my final destination, the one that he marked out for me. In several other places in the Old Testament, that idea of your foot slipping is used to communicate the idea that things are getting so difficult for someone that he's about to give up. He doesn't understand why God allows the world to be the way it is, why he allows things to be so hard, and he's about to lose his faith. Psalm 94, you you have a psalmist who's looking around the world and he sees that the righteous are being oppressed by the wicked and the wicked are mocking them. They're saying, your God doesn't even know what's going on. And the psalmist is saying, I think God does know what's going on, but he's asking, Lord, how long are you going to allow it to go on? And he was struggling. It was so hard for him to wrap his mind around what was happening. But in verse 17 then, he says, if the Lord hadn't been my help, I would have gone to my grave in silence. But the Lord is his help. And with that knowledge, he said this with confidence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your unfailing love will hold me up. And when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations will delight my soul. Psalm 73, we have Asaph struggling because when he looked around, he saw the wicked getting fat and God's children struggling to find food for themselves. And it made no sense to him. Verse 2, he says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. In other words, it got so hard, it was so confusing that I was just ready to give up. Verse 13, he says, "Maybe maybe it's a waste of time to serve the Lord if that's how things are going to be. You've had that thought before, haven't you? Be honest. And he says it made no sense until verse 17, until I came to the sanctuary of God. In other words, nothing made sense until I encountered the real presence of a living God. The circumstance didn't change, but Asaph was helped. And he says, with that help, you have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. And in the presence of God... With the help that comes from God, he got clarity, he got peace, and he got a reminder of what life was all about. And then he made one of the most beautiful statements, I think, in the scripture at the end of the psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. And then a couple of verses later, he adds on simply, as for me, and it's unspoken, but whatever else is happening around me, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. He knows exactly when your foot is about to slip. He knows exactly where your foot is about to slip. 
And when it's become too much, he knows exactly how to grab you by the hand in a very personal way, exactly as you need it, exactly when you need it, in order to accomplish exactly what God has designed for you. He will not allow your foot to slip. And he promises here that that watch that he has over us is perfect down to the last detail, by day and by night, whether you're going out or coming in, not only now, but for all eternity. And it says in verses 3 and 4 that he is so serious about this that he doesn't even sleep. This is where we see the heart of God at its best. He doesn't have to keep you. He wants to keep you. And his heart is turned so completely towards you that he never sleeps. He never stops loving you. He never stops thinking about you. So much that Psalm 139 says that if we tried to count his thoughts towards us, it would be like going to the beach and trying to count every single grain of sand. And those aren't just random thoughts like God saying, I wonder what Dave's up to today. Those are thoughts, purposeful thoughts. The same word we see in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, when he says, I know the plans thoughts that I have towards you. In other words, thoughts about you that have to do with God working out his purposes in your life. And he never stops. His heart is after you. He's making plans. He's working in your life, whether you recognize it or not. He is working to make it possible and to put you in perfect position for him to work in you, to work out the plans that he made for you long before you were born for your joy and for his glory. But this is where the real test of faith comes in. It's not enough to know this theologically. In order for you to rest in his care, you really have to trust in his heart. You won't give yourself to someone that you don't trust. And I think I've only really begun to understand his heart since I became a father. I can't begin to count the number of times that my wife and I have stayed up late into the night talking about our kids. How many times I've laid awake in bed at night for hours thinking about them and praying for them. We weren't doing this for generic children, but for real people with names. Our children, people I know intimately, Hannah, Elizabeth, Joshua and Sarah, and we would talk about their situations, their struggles, their victories. We look ahead to what's coming for them, to seek wisdom and understanding that we will need in order to be the parents that they need us to be. Why do we do that? Because we love them. And more than anything, we want what's best for them. And what's best for them is for them to understand, as Paul prayed, that they would understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Christ is so that they might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And sometimes that means we don't get to sleep very much. And it gives us just a little taste of the heart of God. And I can begin to imagine a father who's always watching, always planning, always working for my good because he loves me and he doesn't want me to miss one bit of the deep joy and satisfaction and life that he's designed me to have in him. He's my keeper, verse 5 says. He's the shade on my right hand. That image is all over Scripture. This idea of being under his shadow. The shadow of his wings is not a dark place. It's a safe place. If you're walking on a sunny day and you suddenly see a big shadow envelop you, you know that someone much larger than you is behind you. Somebody like Dan Bennett, probably. Someone taller, someone broader, and this, he's keeping the sun from doing its thing. You know that. The, the psalmist here is telling us 
that that's how close God is. You can't cast a shadow on someone from far away. He's there, and that's good news. Psalm 23, he says, even if I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, there's a much bigger shadow that embraces me. He says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Our help is intensely personal, not only because he knows every detail, but because our help comes from an actual person. Many of you are aware of the illness my wife has been struggling with. And when we first got this thing, we had no idea what was hitting us. And we were barely hanging on with this. And she would be, have these episodes of paralysis over and over and over and didn't know when they were going to start, when they were going to end. But in the in early years especially, she learned something powerful because there would be times when she couldn't move at all. She couldn't even open her eyes. And when you're like that, you've got nothing. Because as believers, we always think we still have another card in our hand. You know, I can at least get out my journal and write some things. That'll feel better. I can read my Bible. I can play some worship music. But she's like, I can't even lift my finger to press play on my iPod or even speak to ask someone to do it. And we learn something powerful in that time. The presence of God that comes and meets us when we can't get to him. And during that first year, the Lord used this image from Abraham Kuyper in a powerful way. Soak this up. This is really beautiful. Christ speaks not of comfort, but of the comforter. Not a thing, an event, or a fact, but a person who by his personal appearance actually comes to comfort us. The comforter is a person, listen to this, who when I cannot go to the fountain, nor even see it, he goes for me, and he fills his pitcher and puts the refreshing drops to my burning lips. The help is not something that we get from God. The help is God himself. And faith begins to really take root when you understand that truth. What we're journeying towards is not an improved situation or a personal goal. What we are journeying towards is him. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let us run out the race that is marked before us. How do we do that? By looking ahead to the goal. And what are we looking to? Jesus himself. Not something that Jesus is going to give us, but Jesus himself, the author, the perfecter of our faith. He's not just our help along the way. He's the goal of the whole journey. And this journey of Psalm 121 that we're talking about is not just people going where they wanted to go. It's a pilgrimage of worshipers. Their destination was Jerusalem, the temple, which represented what? The presence of Almighty God. This was a group of people who were moving towards him. And he promises that as you do that, you can't possibly miss the help that comes with my presence. The help is a person the goal is a person, and I would rather wallow in my pain with him near than to have him heal my pain from far away. I would rather be hated by the world as I walk with him than to be loved by everyone as I walk alone. The help we have is powerful. The help that we find is personal. And finally, we'll close with this. The help that we have is very purposeful. Verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Some translations say he'll keep you from all harm. And people start to get this idea that, oh, he's going to keep me, from, he's going to build a wall around me. Hedge of protection, we like to call it. And nothing is going to touch me. Everything's going to be wonderful. That's not what he's saying. 
He's not saying that nothing bad will ever happen. He's not saying that pain won't be part of your life. Because if that's our perspective, then when we read the promises in his word, and when we compare that with what happens in our lives, and in the lives of godly people around us, and in the lives of godly people who have gone before us, the only right conclusion would be that God must be a liar. Because that's not how things work out. So we have two options. Either God's a liar, or we haven't interpreted his word properly. I know which option I'm taking. We've got to read the word of God through the lens of what he wants to do in our lives. His promises are wonderful. They're deep. They're many. But in order to understand them, we have to first let God be God. And what he promises is that he will protect you from evil and he will keep your soul. In other words, even when things don't look so good, you can trust that God's at work. Not to keep your circumstances like you would like them, but to keep you. God's goal is not to conform me into the fullness of my will, to help me be everything that I want to be. God's doing something much deeper, something much more wonderful, something much more permanent. He is conforming me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Circumstances come and they go. And whether they're good or not, after a few moments, doesn't even matter. But God is forever, and what he wants is you. And if you're his child today, he refuses to let you go. He refuses to let evil have the last word in your life. He will, this is the promise, keep you for himself. It's the truth of Philippians 1.6 planted deep in your heart. And remember, Paul's writing this from a prison cell, not knowing if he's going to live or die. I'm confident, he says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What he says is true about him for you today will always be true. And he says it very simply in verse 8, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. Not just today, but from this day forth and forever. How do we know he's going to be there? How can we be sure of that? Because he said he would. And because he paid an exorbitant price at the cross to prove it. 1989, a terrible earthquake devastated the country of Armenia. Without warning, the ground just started shaking violently, and it was so powerful that even the strongest building just fell to the ground and were completely destroyed. In some places, the ground even split open and swallowed roads and vehicles and homes. Within four minutes, it was done. That's it, four minutes. But much of the nation was destroyed in that four minutes, and more than 30,000 people were killed. As soon as this earthquake was over, there was a father who went from his home to go and look for his son. He ran quickly to the school where his son was studying, and when he reached there, he found nothing but a big pile of rocks. The father thought his son must surely be dead. But as he looked at the pile, he said he remembered a promise that he had made to his child. He told him once, no matter what happens, I'm always going to be there for you. So he went to where his son's classroom used to be, and he began to pull up pile rock after rock from the pile with his bare hands. Other parents came and said, it's too late. They're all dead. Just give up. But he'd made a promise. Eight hours, he kept digging, but he didn't find him. Sixteen hours, he continued, didn't find him. After 32 hours, still nothing. His hands were bleeding. Most of the skin had been rubbed off. He was exhausted, but he refused to stop because he had made a promise. Finally, after digging for 38 hours, he moved a large rock, and he heard the voice of his son. He called his name, and the boy said, Dad, I'm here. And then he said, Dad, I told the other children they didn't need to worry. 
I told them you'd find me because you made a promise. You said no matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. And I knew that you would keep that promise. I knew that you would come because I'm your son and you're my dad. We'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon says about the confidence that a child of God can have in the help of God. Disasters and setbacks may lay him low. He may, like Job, be stripped of everything, like Joseph, be put in prison, like Jonah, be cast into the deep. He shall not be utterly cast down. He will be, he will be brought on his knees, but not on his face. Or if laid on his face for a moment, he shall be up again before too long. No saint will fall finally or fatally. Sorrow may bring us to the earth. Death may bring us to the grave, but we cannot sink lower. And out of the lowest of all, we shall arise to the highest of all. For the Lord upholds us with his hand. Where grace does not keep us from going down, it will save us from being kept down. It's not that the saints are strong or wise or deserving, that therefore they rise after every fall, but because God is their helper, and therefore none can prevail against them. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you have a Father who will love you relentlessly, who will never take his eyes off you, who will never fail to keep his promises to you, who will pursue you, who will walk with you, who will carry you, and he will not stop until he has brought you finally and safely home. On the journey, there's a lot of stuff that happens, but the Bible's full of beautiful stuff. Surrounded by enemies, great. The psalmist promises he'll prepare a feast in the presence of my enemies. Paul says in Romans 8, he gives us a laundry list of bad things that could happen to us. And he says, in the midst of these things, not in the absence of these things, in the midst of these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. In other words, we conquer. It doesn't mean the situation gets fixed, but we conquer because he is with us. And then Paul tells us why. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. 